0: Turn your Bibles, if you would, please, to the Gospel of Matthew. I know that some of you are thinking, wait a minute, preacher, you finished it. (laughs) Easter, right? Well, we did get to chapter twenty-eight and verse twenty. But if you remember, maybe about four weeks ago, I told you that we were going to skip over a couple of chapters uh, so that we could coordinate our messages with the Passion Week of Christ. Which we did, and so it worked out perfectly. But I would be terribly remiss if I didn't go back and pick up on these two chapters. And I'm not going to preach both of them today, so don't sweat it. But um, but one of the most powerful discourses given by our Lord in the Gospel of Matthew, known as the uh, Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is teaching his disciples about the end time there on the Mount of Olives, hence the Olivet Discourse. And so I take you back to chapter 23. We're going to make reference to 22 very briefly. But <clears throat> we're going to get a and start at chapter 24 and 25. Uh, but we won't really get into those chapters because it just takes a little time to set the stage. And it's worth taking the time, I believe, to help us to fully understand and appreciate these very powerful, pivotal words of prophecy that the Lord was giving to His disciples and to you and me. I don't know about you. I'm interested in what the future holds. Uh, I'm interested in knowing what's, what's ahead of us as a, as a church, as a body of Christ, what this world is, is facing. Uh, so anyway, you may recall in chapter 22, Jesus is confronted by... This is the last affront by His enemy, if you will, to try to tangle Him up, to try to trip Him up, to snare Him up, to try to cause Him to discredit Himself. He's in Jerusalem. He's there at the temple. A multitude, as usual, gathers around because he's teaching, he's working miracles, he's drawing throngs of people. And so if Jesus has been confronted in waves, three waves of three different groups of the Pharisees, the scribes, Sadducees are trying to come at him, and, and so they are, in, and so three times they try to trip him up, and three times they fail miserably as he exercises his infinite authority over them. And it's interesting at the end of chapter 22, after they had failed, and and the coin is, the table is turning now, but in in chapter 22, verse 46, after they had, uh, he had virtually shut them up with his wisdom and with his great knowledge, and and, and it says in verse 46 of chapter 22, and, and no one was able to answer him the question he had asked, proving that he was the Messiah. Nor from that day on did anyone dare to question Him anymore. They knew they were out of their league. This Jesus possessed divine authority with the Word that they couldn't even begin to touch. Now, they weren't through with Him, as you well know, as we found out later in the Gospel of Matthew, but they were through trying to test Him and challenge Him. So the table is turned now and Jesus is going to come after them. And one of the most powerful, scathing rebukes of the religious leaders of that day, Jesus, in chapter 23, might, you might say, lambast the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. And I want you to understand why He did that. And it will come out as we go into that. But as we look at chapter 23, it says, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to His disciples. Now, He's there in the temple complex. And Jesus is speaking directly to the multitudes, but also His disciples, the inner group. Indirectly, He's speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. They're there. They're in earshot. But He's... Amen. what he's saying, he's talking to the people, but he knows his adversaries are listening. And he's talking about them. And so in verse 2 it says, he was saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. And I want you to understand, Jesus is not challenging their legitimate role as the authorities on the Word of God, they were entrusted as the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, to interpret the law of Moses and to assist the people in abiding by and observing the law. But that wasn't the case, and that's why this scathing rebuke by the Lord, Jesus lambasts them, first of all, for their unbiblical practices. In verse 3, He says, therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do do not do according to their works. For they say and they do not do. It's kind of tongue twisted. He says, yes, when they speak authoritatively from the law of Moses. The law of Moses then yes, you listen. And you do according to the law. But He says, I give you a warning, don't try to imitate them. Because they're not practicing what they preach. They're not doing what they're telling you you're supposed to be doing. Hence, they're hypocrites. You'll see this term over and over and over. A hypocrite is somebody that pretends. It's taken from the etymology of that word, which means one who wears a mask, as in the theater or soap opera. Well, anyway, they're hypocrites, and Jesus says they do what they say from the law, but don't try to imitate them because they have missed the mark. It makes me think about what James said in James chapter one, verse twenty-two and twenty-three. He says, "If anyone is a hearer of hearer of the word and not a doer," He's deceived himself. He's like a man that looks at himself observes his natural face in the mirror and turns and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of a person he was. James said, don't be just a hearer of the word. Be a doer of the word. It been good if the Pharisees and Sadducees could have heard what James had to say later. Well, jump over to verse 14, same chapter, chapter 23. I just want to excerpt some things here. I want you to see that what Jesus is talking about. For instance, He's, he's saying their are they're unbiblical practice. They, they are exhibiting glaring inconsistencies and double standards and hypocrisy. Verse 14, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. There you go. For you devour the widow, widows' houses And for a pretense, make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. How dare you, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and and the Sadducees and scribes. He says, "You're, you're swindling widows out of their money. They have a limited income. And you dare swindle them out of their money for your own greedy purposes. And then you have the audacity to stand in public and offer these long, sanctimonious prayers that are empty as they can be. Hypocrites. Jesus said, therefore, you will receive greater condemnation, which leads me to believe that there are degrees of judgment in hell. He says, you'll get condemnation and you will get it even greater. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one prostitute, 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 proselyte. Good gracious, i got to get my bifocals adjusted. I don't know, maybe they dealt with prostitutes too. But anyway, you travel all over the world to win one proselyte. And when he is won, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Where to you blind gods who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Speaking of God. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. You see, the Pharisees and scribes, Sadducees, had developed a very convenient method of being able to conveniently lie. If Rabbi so-and-so, scribe or Pharisee, told a neighbor, Hey, lend me $50 or shekels. Sure, but you've got to promise you'll pay it. I swear I'll pay it, pay it back. Swear, Yeah, I swear on the temple. I'll pay it back. Two weeks later, neighbor comes over. Knock, knock, knock. Hey, Mr. Pharisee, you know that 50 shekels that you borrowed? You, you said you'd pay it back. Oh, I I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. What? You swore by the temple. Oh, yeah, but I, you know, I didn't swear by the gold in the temple. Now, if I was sworn by the gold in the temple there, yeah, you could have held me accountable. Jesus is saying, You hypocrites! You are the very opposite of that which you are proposing the people should be. He was lambasting them for their unbiblical practices, their unrealistic and dangerously unscriptural legalism. You know, Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13, you don't have to turn, I'll read it for you. He says, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it. And in verse four of chapter twenty-three, Jesus says, "For talking about the scribes and Pharisees, for they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers." Jesus is is assaulting them for their terrible practice of legalism whereby they were not only teaching the law of Moses, but as you well know, they were coming up with legal traditions that they were adding to the law, impossible for the people to even begin to fulfill which was depressing the people and disabling them from coming to know the true way to salvation. In chapter 23, verse 13, Jesus says... He says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Jesus says, I'm holding you accountable. You're in a role that God has entrusted to you to show the people the way. The narrow way. The narrow gate. You're supposed to be ushering the people in through the narrow way. And look at you. You're heaping upon them this these unrealistic, legalistic expectations whereby the people have no hope. You've discouraged them. You've depressed them. You've distracted them. They don't even know the way. You're going to hell. And what's worse, you're taking a lot of them with you. Hypocrites. you can understand why the Lord Jesus was so upset? I think this is a good lesson to church leaders today. We need to be very careful that in our zeal to uphold the teachings of the Word of God, we don't add to it our own interpretations and our own preferences and our own understandings and cultural ideas and make it so burdensome for God's people. Stick to the Word. That's all we need. The Word is sufficient to guide people to the way to salvation, but also in the way of living the Christian life. Jesus not only lambasts these scribes and Pharisees there. Look over chapter in chapter 23, verse 29. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, now this is cute, isn't it? If we had lived in the days of our fathers, talking about hypocrites, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Heaven forbid that we would do as our forefathers did and treat God's servants, His prophets, with disdain and and, and, and harm and, and even kill them. Oh no, we're innocent of that blood. Jesus says in verse 31, therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Jesus thinking about himself. He's thinking, looking at that group of, of, of religious leaders and thinking in the back of his mind, you bunch of rascals, you, here you are claiming that you're innocent. You're right now scheming to kill the son of God. Jesus looked and saw Stephen standing there as the Jewish leaders were throwing stones to stone him to death. Jesus saw the church being persecuted. He saw Peter and John being scourged and and beaten for teaching about the resurrected Jesus Christ. Oh, he said in verse 32, fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. In other words, everything your daddy's got, you're going to get even more, he says, because you're worse than they are. You'll notice in verse 33, Jesus uses the very words that John the Baptist did when he came on the scene. John the Baptist was preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he looked up and he saw the Sadducees and the the Pharisees coming to find out what was going on. You remember what John the Baptist says? You brood of vipers? You bunch of snakes? That make you feel welcome, doesn't it? it's interesting, Jesus uses the very same terminology as he's talking about the scribes and Pharisees. He says, serpents, brood of vipers? How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Knowing that you are who you are and do what you do and you violate the Word of God and you've misused the role that God has given to you. How do you think it's even possible that you can avoid hell? You're about to kill the very Son of God. How in the world is there mercy for you? Therefore, indeed, he says, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill And crucify and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. You remember a young Jewish zealot by the name of Saul of Tarsus? With the authority of the Jewish leaders, what was he doing? He was hunting down Christians, chasing them down, persecuting them, throwing them into into jail. And if necessary, kill them. Any way to stamp out this movement of radicals called the way Christians verse 35, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel, the first martyr of the Old Testament, if you will, to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. In other words, Jesus says, God holds you accountable for the shed blood of all the martyrs of the Old Testament. From Abel to Zechariah and then the ones that you are persecuting now and the ones you will persecute. Your hands are full of the blood of the prophets of God. He said, Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jesus is standing in the temple complex. He's looking at the multitude. He's talking to the religious leaders. He's saying, this generation is a generation of woe because the wrath of God is going to come upon you. Jesus lambasts them also for their unrighteous attitudes. Go back to verse 5. He says, but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries, which is an Old Testament tradition, whereby God was emphasizing to the Jewish people that they ought to keep the word of God handy, keep it in their heart. Is what God's saying. Keep the word of God in your heart, but He says, as a sign, put it on your hand, put it on your Yeah, as a sign, just just as a visible reminder. I don't know how many of y'all use stickum notes. I'm a heavy investor in stickum notes. The more that my memory goes, the more notes I get. i got notes to remind me to look at notes, to look at notes. It's terrible, but it's just the way of life. These are just little signs, you know, just little visible symbols to remind you, get the Word of God, get the Word of God, get it in your heart. Well, they took that and and over-literalized that, and they developed these phylacteries which are wooden boxes in which they put certain passages of the Old Testament Scripture and, and, and they made them big. They had one attached to their arm just above the elbow, and then they put one on the forehead. And these were wooden boxes that had leather bands. Well, they made them as big as they could. Not so they could remind themselves to store the Word of God in the heart, but they wanted the praise of the people. Oh, look at there. Pharisee so-and-so. Have you ever seen such a phylactery? Look at that thing. As big as a toolbox. He must be spiritual. <laughs> He says, you know what you're doing, he says in verse 5, but all their works they do to be seen by men. The Pharisees, verse 6, they love the best places at the feast, the best seats in the synagogue. Oh, yeah, they, they want to make sure that everybody sees them. Oh, oh you, can't, you can't sit there. That's, that's a scribe seat, you know. No, 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 no you can't sit there. That's a Sadducee's seat. <laughs> oh, look at all those Pharisees up there, the big chairs and, oh, raised up on a platform. Oh, they loved it. They ate it up. Look at us. We're somebody. And Jesus as much as says, you're nobody in God's eyes. You bunch of hypocrites. In verse 7, they like the greetings in the marketplace. You know, when the people would see him in the marketplace, the Pharisees and scribes had instructed them. Now, don't just greet me by that. Hey, John. <laughs> oh no, no, no. Oh, rabbi. Rabbi. Oh, there's our rabbi. They love to hear their title being blurted out in public, and Jesus says it's all for show. He said in verse eight, "But you do not call be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren." I say, Amen. I love calling my brothers in Christ brothers, and my sisters in Christ sisters. I get it right here from Jesus. Do not call anyone on the your earth uh, on the earth your father. For one is your Father. And that's our Heavenly Father. He who is in heaven. Do not be called teachers. For one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Boy, Jesus teaches a very valuable lesson there. You see, all of their elaborate public practices were not anything to do with their relationship with God. It was all all to draw attention to themselves. We saw that earlier in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus was talking over there in, in chapter 3 when, when he was talking about, or, I'm sorry, chapter 7 was talking about praying. He says, don't, don't pray like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He said, they pray just in public just to be noticed. He says, when you fast, don't fast like the Pharisees. They just do it to be seen. They, they, they mess up their face and they dump ashes and they, they do anything to draw their faces up and look like they're about half starved to death. Jesus said, don't, don't do it as the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're hypocrites. Whatever you do for the Lord, do it inwardly. It's between you and God. It's not so that other people can praise you. It's about praising God. All, all of their External sanctimonious actions and, and and garb and everything was designed to draw praise to them. And Jesus says, You're a bunch of hypocrites. Woo! That's not stopping a mule for those of you that grew up in the country like I did. This is a declaration of condemnation. You're in trouble. Woe to you! I feel sorry for you! Jesus said. But then, again, as we're looking here in chapter 23, and we're up to, we look over to verse 37, after lambasting the religious leaders, Jesus' tone, his emotion changes the indignation and the anger that he had towards these hypocritical leaders, now you sense a deep compassion within the Lord. I remind you, he's standing in the temple complex, throngs of people around him, and look what he says in verse 37, because we move from the Messiah's condemnation of the religious leaders, we move now to the Messiah's lamentation over the Jewish People. He's lamenting. He's deeply, deeply hurt and disturbed within his spirit because he knows what awaits the nation of Israel, the people of God. Verse 37 Oh, Jerusalem. And whenever Jesus repeats something, he's emphasizing it. Like, verily, verily, Jerusalem! Jerusalem! Oh, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. So that would include the Jewish leaders as well as the people. He says, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. That's reminiscent of what John said in his gospel in chapter 1 verse 11 when he says he, speaking of Jesus, came to his own and his own did not receive him. And Jesus says, and if you've ever been around chickens on the hens and their little biddies and all those of you that grew up on the farm or even visited a farm or went to the Nature Science Center, I learned early as a young boy, don't mess with the biddies. They were fascinating to me. There's little puffs of chicken with their little beaks, you know, and they're running around, beep, 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 beep. That's why I guess they are called peepers. And I try, I had my old straw hat on, you know, my cowboy straw hat. That looked weird on an Indian, didn't it? But anyway, it's all a And I'm running around trying to catch them and put them on my straw hat. And after I got about two or three, I felt this heavy weight on my head and this searing pain. And I looked and there's Mama Hen on my head. And she's pecking the daylights out of my head. I figured right away, right, right away, these chicks are not worth it. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna get brain surgery by a hen. So, you know, but she's protecting. And, and, and as soon as she got off my head, she quickly gathered all those little chicks and just go around with the wings spread like that, you know, and just gather them up, gather them up, protecting them. I read a story by a forest ranger out in the mid, out in the west. Talking about after at the wildfire that they they were coming in and kind of putting out the hot spots and whatever they came up on a tree that had been just totally seared and, and and burned by by the fire and he said at the base of the tree there was a quail and he noticed some the odd, odd about this quail the quail was just propped up against the tree with its wings spread he thought Oh well that's weird. So he goes over with his prod, you know, they've been putting out the hot spots, and he, he says he took that prod and he just kind of the, the quail was obviously dead. She, she was she, feathers and everything seared. And and so he just flipped it over. And he says, out from under that corpse of that mother quail ran a bunch of little baby quails. She'd given her life. Protecting her babies. You you see the You can understand what Jesus said. Look, I would have done anything. Anything. I came to reveal God to you. I would have done anything to gather you under my wings, but you would not receive me. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jesus lamented the Jews had rejected their Messiah, knowing that they had been blindly misled by their leaders, knowing how deeply God the Father loved them. Irregardless of how rebellious and hard headed that the Jews were, the fact is God loved them. Never, never stopped loving them. Or oh, if they could have only heard what the Apostle Peter later said over in Second Peter in chapter 3, verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You want to know the heart of God towards the Jews? He wanted them to repent. He wanted them to come to Him. He sent His only Son, and they rejected Him. Oh, our God loves lost sinners. If you're here today and you don't have a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, God doesn't give up on you. He loves you. You want to know what God's heart is for you? He wants you to repent of your sins, turn from your sins, and come to Him through Christ. Oh, that's the heart of God. And that was the heart that you see projected by Jesus in this great lament. But then in verse 38... Not only did Jesus lament the, Jew, the Jews' rejection of their Messiah, but He lamented the fate of this rebellious generation. Oh, if they could only look at the crystal ball. Oh, if they could only see what was transpiring right there before them at that very moment. Because, you see, they would witness what I think is one of the most horrific things that can happen for the people of God. And that was the withdrawal of the glory of God. Jesus is about to leave the temple. Let me restate that. God is about to leave the temple. Why was the temple built? It was built to worship Jehovah God who was there in their midst. Jehovah God in the form of His Son, the incarnated Christ. He was about to leave them. You may say, well, big deal. It is a big deal if you are the people of God. You may recall back in 1 Samuel when Eli the priest was judging the nation of Israel. Eli was an okay priest, but then he kind of went bad. He had two sons. Phinehas and Hophni, who were just as sorry as they could be, they were engaging in all kinds of immorality. They were supposed to be the priests to help the people. And God says, I'm going to judge Israel. He said, listen, these fake priests have poisoned my people. I'm going to bring judgment upon them. And so when Israel went out to fight their annual perennial arch enemies, the Philistines, guess what? God allowed the Philistines to defeat them. Which the whites couldn't figure out what's going on. This is terrible. We're desperate. We got to get rid of the Philistines. We so what do they do? They call for the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God amongst His people. And they take the Ark of the Covenant. And of course, they have Phineas, Phineas and Hophni come, the priest, with it. And they say, "Oh, all the soldiers are cheering. We got the Ark. We're going to battle now. No way we can lose now." So they take the Ark. With Phinehas and Hophni into the battle with them, and the Philistines whipped the daylights out of them, worse than the first time. Killed the two priests, uh, sons of the priests, but worse than that, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. For when the word got back to Phinehas' wife, she heard that the news that the Ark had been captured. First Samuel chapter four verse nineteen she gave birth, I guess she was pregnant. Yes, she was. She gave birth, labor pain, suddenly she was so distraught. She was of course she heard about her husband being killed and her father-in-law dying, broke his neck when he found out. And and listen, in verse 20, and about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said, Oh, do not fear, for you have born a son. That was a good thing for a Jewish woman. No offense, ladies, it was just a cultural thing. But she did not answer. Nor did she regard it. She named the child Ichabod. Anybody here got Ichabod? I hope not. As your name, because it meant the glory has departed from Israel. The ark has been captured. God's glory is no longer with us. We're in terrible straits. No longer. There's the ark with us, which means the glory of God is no longer with us. We're not even a people. And then one other time, and I'll, I won't go back into the old text, but, but, but this is so important. The prophet Ezekiel, all the way back in chapter 8, he has prophesied. God has said to Ezekiel, my people are apostate, they are rebellious. They have rejected me. They're in sin and idolatry. They've shamed me. God says, I'm bringing judgment upon them, which he did. But he gave Ezekiel a vision, a vision beginning in chapter eight. And you just have to kind of follow it. I'm not going to read it. But, but Ezekiel saw the glory of God in the, in the holy of holies, in the innermost court of the temple. He saw the glory of God there above the cherubim. But then the cherubim began to move, and Ezekiel goes on to say in chapter 9, he saw the glory of God then move from the inner court to the threshold of the the, uh, temple. And then he goes on in chapter 10, and he talks about how he sees the glory of God begin to move from the threshold of the temple to the eastern gate of the house of the Lord. And then finally, in chapter 11, He says, I see the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain which is on the east side, which would be the Mount of Olives. God was gradually withdrawing His glory from His people. And I want you to see a connection here. I don't try to tie God's dealings with Israel with our country. But you know, as a citizen of this country and one who loves this nation and one who recognizes historically how God has over the generations blessed our nation, there was a time when the people of God and most Americans, I guess, did indeed recognize God. There was a time when the practice of Christianity was looked upon with favor You know as well as I do, that's not the case anymore. If anything... Christianity is looked upon with disfavor and disdain and would one day, I believe, soon be persecuted as a faith in this pagan nation in which we live. Could it be, ladies and gentlemen, that God in His own way has withdrawn His glory from the nation of the United States of America? Let me ask you, what chance do we stand as a nation against the forces of evil in the world if God Himself removes His glory from this country? I'll take you back chapter twenty-four. Go back to verse uh, chapter twenty-three, verse thirty-eight. Jesus says, See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the Hallel. When did we hear that before? It was when Jesus was making His triumphant entrance into the city of Jerusalem. The people misguided in their thinking about the Messiah and who would be. They thought He was the Messiah as they thought He was going to be. And, and so they're shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Well, then they would quickly change their tune. Jesus says, you won't see Me again. Talking to the Jewish people. You won't see Me again until I come in Glory. And those who see Me, and He's not talking about the ones that are there in the temple that day. Those who see Me will say, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is about to leave the temple. He's about to turn His back on the house of worship of Jehovah God. He's about to walk away from the religious leaders. He's about to walk away from the Jewish population. He's about to exit the temple. It's not like... the. Announcers that say Elvis has left the building, folks, it's a whole lot bigger than that. When Jesus stepped out of the temple, leaving, turning his back on the temple, walking out of the streets of, walking out of the city of Jerusalem, God was turning his back on the people of God, the Jews. The glory of God was leaving Israel as a nation. And Jesus gave them a forewarning in your house. You notice that's a little different way that Jesus refers to the temple. Earlier, in John's Gospel, and Matthew, when Jesus was cleansing the temple, whose house was it? My Father's house! Now as the glory of God is leaving the people of God, He says, it's yours. God's taking His hand off of it. It's yours. And now we'll look at chapter 24 very quickly. We're only going to look at the first three verses. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And His disciples came to Him to show Him the, the buildings of the temple. This is the Messiah's revelation to His disciples. I'm setting you up for, the, for that powerful discourse we call the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is about to blow their minds. He's going to reveal to them revelation they've never, ever heard before. But as they are leaving the city of Jerusalem and they go down through the Kidron Valley and they begin to climb the Mount of Olives where they will be looking back on the city of Jerusalem and more specifically the temple complex. Hold your place there, but let me share something that Mark enlightens us in his Gospel. In chapter 13, and verse 1, they say to Jesus, Teacher, see what manner of stones and buildings they are. I don't know about you. Have you ever gone to maybe a a city or or seen a a building that was just so? I remember when I was in seminary, went up to New York City and had a class up there for a week in in you know Lower Manhattan. And so me and a group of students that were with me, we went we want to go tour you know see the Statue of Liberty, and we want to go and and tour the what was then the Twin Towers. And I'll never forget us riding up in those elevators that night to get to the observation deck. We rode up escalators. Then we got on elevators. Then we got on more escalators. Hundreds of floors. I thought we'd never get up there. We finally got up to the top. We went out in the observation deck that you could look around the city of New York, look down on the Statue of Liberty. Folks, their airplane flew underneath us. That's how high up in the air we were. I just thought, my goodness, this has got to be kind of like the rapture at standstill or something like that. My goodness, what a building! When we went back down, I said, "Guys, let's just, let's just lean up against this thing and look up to the top." I don't know why. And as we did, you get the building just kind of curved. It was so tall. I said, "How in the what a what a magnificent feat of engineering!" I was just in awe. Well, the temple complex was a wonder in the ancient uh, uh, days. It was a wonder people came from miles and miles around from other countries to see this great complex that Herod the Great had started building in 20 B.C. and even in Jesus' day it was still under construction even to the day it was destroyed it was still under construction. We can't even wrap our minds around how how massive this temple complex was. One scholar says that just one of the stones, which was white marble which was precisely mined in one piece. Some of those stones were as large as 40 feet long, 12 feet high, 12 feet wide, weighing hundreds of tons. Folks, this is before the day of dynamite and jackhammers, bulldozers and cranes. He's talking about a massive complex. And yet Jesus tells His disciples something very startling. In verse 2, Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Well, I imagine you could have slapped Peter and James and John and Andrew across the face with a, a dead fish and you wouldn't have shocked them anymore. Jesus is predicting, prophesying what would happen in about 40 years from there. In 70 AD, sure enough, here comes the Roman army. They've had to come in and put down these little uprisings of these These mealy-minded, rebellious Jews over and over and over. Oh, they just had so much trouble with these Jews. Finally, Caesar had had it. He says, listen, go and tear the place down. I don't want to ever have to deal with these Jews again. And Titus and his army did just that. They came and they built ramparts against the walls. They tore the walls absolutely down. They raised the temple. I mean, shredded it, tore it all the way down They killed, murdered citizens, young and old. Blood was flowing through the streets of Jerusalem. Jesus said, not one stone will be left on another. And He knew it would happen. Dr. John MacArthur in his commentary cited the Jewish historian Josephus, who lived in that time period. And this is what he said after the Romans had finished the blessed city of Jerusalem. Josephus says that a person visiting the site after the destruction could not believe that anyone had ever inhabited the place, much less that one of the most significant structures of the ancient world had stood there only a short time before. You see what happens when the people of God reject the Messiah? Do you see what it is when God removes His glory? And this sets up the question in verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. This is just between him and the inner circle. Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? You've got to understand, if you go back and read, Old Testament writings and extra-biblical writings that the Jews utilized as, as Scripture. There was a mindset. There's no denying that the Jews were looking for a Messiah. God had promised He was going to send a Messiah
1: out of the lineage
0: of David. They were looking forward to a day of deliverance when the Messiah would come and He would deliver them from all of their problems, and and He would rid them from all their enemies, and He would usher in a time of prosperity and peace. They looked forward to this. The prophets in the Old Testament, that's the way they saw the Messiah come in. And Jesus' disciples, that's the way they saw the Messiah come in. In other words, once He came, it was going to be one succession of activities to the point that He asserts Himself in glory and power and establishes His rule, overcomes the enemies, conquers all the enemies, and establishes Israel as a kingdom and He reigns on the earth with peace and prosperity. There's only one problem. They had no way of knowing that God had inserted a mystery about the coming of the Messiah. Yes, he's coming. But had they looked closely and studied closely Isaiah chapter 53, it was all there. The Messiah would come, but he wouldn't come as a conquering hero his first time. He would come as a humble servant of God. He would come and yield himself to pay the price for the sins and the iniquities of the, of the people, He would be battered and bruised and beyond recognition. He would be tortured. He would be killed. He would be buried. But you see, somehow conveniently, they just pushed over that. That didn't fit with the mold. So, when Jesus' disciples are asking Him, they fully still believe. Now that Jesus had lambasted the religious leaders, turned His back on the city of Jerusalem, He's ready now to bring down some power. What sign, Lord, do we see that You're ready to do this? Because they were thinking as soon as He gets Himself asserted with the power, establishes His kingdom, then we're going to be in positions of power too. We're going to be benefiting from all this. So, Lord, what is the sign? Will it be pitch darkness coming at midday? Will it be fireballs falling down from heaven? Will it be angelic hosts blaring trumpets and saying, da 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 Quit what, what sign. Lord, it's going to happen soon, we know. We, we, just, we know you're, you're ready to establish yourself and to take control and to vanquish uh, our enemies. Oh, Lord, what is the sign? A reasonable question because, you see, they were expecting for Jesus. How many, how many of you uh, remember Superman? The story, comic book, movies, super. See, I, 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 young people, I'm sorry. I, but, you know, I date myself. Think in terms of Transformers, okay. But you see, Superman disguised himself during the day as a reporter for a newspaper, and he walked around in a suit looking like an average Joe kind of guy. But then, anytime you he heard Lois Lane holler, help, Superman, help, or whatever, if, ever, if there was trouble, bank robbery, whatever, Super Clark, Clark Kent would run into what? Oh. Telephone booth. See, <laughs> so y'all wouldn't know what that is either. It was a little booth. That you could go in and there was a payphone in there you could get on. But Superman would go change clothes. Uh, and that wasn't probably easy to do in the telephone booth. But anyway, he would go into the telephone booth as Meek Mile Clark Kent. But then he came out, bah, 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 blue, and suit underwear, uh, blue and red underwear with a big S on it. Looked like Long John's, but he had a cape. He, could, he had massive power. He could fly. Oh, what a transformation. I would be there. Uh, man, I just couldn't wait to run down to the telephone booth. I said, Hey, go, Clark, there's a telephone booth. Go, man, go. Superman's going to come and he's going to kick some bad bandits. <laughs> got to be real careful. I've already thrown <laughs> prostitutes on proselytes, so I've got to be real careful. I'm just trying to get you to understand the mindset of the disciples. They were thinking, He's the Messiah. He's the Messiah. Do you understand even in Acts chapter 1, after His death, burial, and resurrection, I believe Jesus' the disciples still thought that somehow He was going to do it right then. When is it going to happen? When are you going to change? When are you going to... All the glory of heaven, power and dominion, angels. Oh, let it be, let it be, let it be. And Jesus is setting them up. Because He's going to reveal to them in chapter 24 and 25 that which we call the Olivet Discourse. He's not going to do it right then. There are some absolutely phenomenal things that will happen during the church age. Come Pentecost, and we studied about that in Christian Growth Group last Sunday. Once Pentecost came down upon Peter and James and John and the other apostles, the light bulb went on. Now we see, we've got a church to build. We've got a commission to carry out. We've got a wall to wind. And the Messiah is coming back. What about you? How do you see Jesus? Do you look forward to His coming again? Do you understand what the Scripture teaches us about this age we call the church age? What is our responsibility now? Are we supposed to be sitting back comfortably, just looking at the skies and waiting for Jesus? Oh, no. Do we wring our hands when North Korea is aiming nuclear weapons in our way? Or, or Iran is talking war and rattling sabers and the economy is about to crumble? How, how do we look at this world that is deteriorating around us? Jesus has got a lot to say about that. But just as we sang together as a congregation, and I hope you meant every word of it, one day, (laughs) one day He's coming again. I believe that with all my heart. And He will establish His kingdom and reign with power and glory and there will be no sin and the devil will be eliminated and death will be defeated and, and and God's reign will be upon the earth and we will be in His presence. Oh, listen, do you look forward to that? Do you live with that expectation? Praises be unto His holy name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have promised us by the words of Your Son Jesus Christ that You won't leave us as little orphans. But when you ascended into heaven, Lord, you sent your Holy Spirit, the Helper, who abides with us forever. And Holy Spirit, we welcome you into our hearts, our lives. And we thank you that as the Helper, you guide us in our way as Christians, in the way that we live. You convict us when we step out of your will. You remind us of the things that the Word of God The living Word has to tell us, to enlighten us, so that we can continue to live the abundant life with great expectation that we will see our Savior again. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who does not have that great hope of heaven, who does not live with this wonderful assurance of knowing that no matter what happens to this world, we have a home in heaven where we'll be in the presence of God forever. Lord, I pray for Christians who have allowed the world and all the troubles and burdens and temptations to distract them and pull them away from the blessed hope and assurance that is ours, who may be living defeated lives. I pray that, Lord, You would remind them of the very things that You're telling us in Your Word. And God, I pray that You will help us as a body of believers to be faithful, to carry out Your great commission, knowing that the day is drawing nigh when You will come again. Help, Lord, we pray that you will help us, that you will find us faithful when you come. Jesus, we thank you. We pray now that you speak to hearts as decisions are made. In thy precious name we pray. Amen.